I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Thanks for your support on Patreon, Chris Jemignani. Chris, as Lord Jemignani, master of all futures was known to have offered a fortune-telling to a travelling King Charles II of Britain while he was on his king's evil. Charles was quickly whisked away before he could be offered a terrifying vision of his future. This is all, of course, a massive lie, but if you'd like me to lie about you, head on over to Patreon and, well, follow on the links to do the rest. But otherwise, I hope you enjoy episode 17 of the Thirty Years' War. Hello and welcome to episode 17 of the 30 Years War. My name is Zach Twomley and this is When Diplomacy Fails and I'm very happy to have you with me. In the last episode we actually saw this big event happen that we've been building towards for, yeah, a really long time. And I know we talk a lot about background and context in this series, but if you've started listening to this originally when we first started the 30 Years War, like all the way back with those 17th century warfare episodes, then technically you've had 31 episodes of background and only just got to the point in 1618 when this war supposedly began. And you may want to look at that in a negative light, but instead I would encourage you to be happy because now that you've got all this background detail, of course still foremost in your mind, you'll know exactly who everyone is and what all these different debates mean and where this is all headed. Of course, I'm joking. It doesn't matter if you can't remember all of those things that we've talked about before. But I would encourage you, if you're a bit hazy on some details, to check out some of those older episodes. I know the two-week schedule is kind of trying when you're trying to find a story and you're trying to follow all the major details, but I do feel like this is the best way to help me also keep up with this show while also doing a PhD. So I appreciate your guys' patience, and I do appreciate as well that this story is really starting to get very exciting and very juicy. They've just thrown them out the window and now it's time to wait and see how everyone's going to respond. The defenestration of Prague had rocked Bohemia to its core and it engineered a revolt which grew and grew until by early June 1619 this revolt was banging on the gates of Vienna itself. Ferdinand, the king of Bohemia and the man whom the rebels had effectively ignored for much of the revolt, could be ignored no longer once Emperor Matthias died, and the rebels were brought face to face with the gravity of their situation and their decision. 
it would no longer be possible to claim that they acted against corruption and malevolent policies rather than acting against the Habsburg dynasty that was essentially responsible for such policies. With Matthias dead and Ferdinand embodying all they feared, the rebels went for broke. But at first, this vast gamble didn't seem like all that much of a gamble at all. Ferdinand was beleaguered at home in Vienna and he was facing down consistent defeats by the rebels who had combined with the forces present in their kingdom in Silesia and Moravia and who welcomed foreign support led by Ernst of Manfeld, our perennial loser. But he wasn't a perennial loser yet. At this point he was really just offering his help to anyone who would take him. As if all this wasn't bad enough for Ferdinand though, he was also forced to watch as his own subjects in Austria joined in the fray. The Upper Austrian Estates pledged their support for the rebels, just as that rebel army led by Count Thurn closed in on Vienna. By bearing down on Vienna itself, the rebels could force Ferdinand to grant the concessions they desired, but it remained to be seen if Ferdinand was as alone as it seemed, and whether in the distance, those agreements forged with the Habsburg Spanish cousins would bear fruit. Without any further ado, let's find out as I take you to a stormy scene in Vienna in early June 1619. I have weighed the dangers that approach from all sides, and since I know of no further human aid, I ask the Lord for his help. But if it should be the will of God that I go under in this struggle, so be it. These were reported to be the words which Ferdinand spoke to his Jesuit confessor as the net appeared to close around him and the forces of rebellion threatened to extinguish the vitality of his dynasty. To many in Europe, to a great many in Europe, it indeed seemed likely that Ferdinand would go under, as he put it, or at the very least, the Habsburgs should consider the fierce opposition which this man provoked and look to another candidate to replace Ferdinand. Was there, as one historian reasoned, from the dynastic point of view, any object in re-establishing a man, he means Ferdinand in this case, whose weaknesses would be a menace to their prestige and whose chances of the imperial crown were dwindling? Ferdinand would surprise them all, for as he lay prostrate in an exercise of apparent desperation and futility, help was already at hand. The Protestant Bohemians, led by Turn, had marched a long way to meet face to face with their king, and their journey had been aided by the cooperation of friends in the Protestant Austrian nobility. This fact would surely have stung Ferdinand, who had always equated religion with loyalty, but it would also have significantly clarified the wider picture. Were he able to survive the confrontation with the rough, burly confederates who had come so far, powered on such raw emotion, then he could sponsor a justified reaction which would rid his lands of heresy once and for all and grant those loyal subjects the rewards they deserved. In short, it was all much clearer now. If you were a Protestant, you were almost certainly likely to join up with the rebels. And enough rebels happened to be Protestant that Ferdinand could now justify expelling them all. First, of course, he would have to survive this ordeal. The date was the 5th of June, 1619. The atmosphere was hot and heavy, and the mood of the city's populace was tense. Bursting through the doors of the Hofburg Palace, 
Count Thurn and his accomplices marched up the stairs to where Ferdinand was known to reside. There, in an incredible scene, the arch-rebel came face to face with the archduke. The windows of the Hofburg were open, and it was the height of a Viennese summer. Thurn may well have gestured to the possibility that another defenestration, more terrible and incendiary than the last, would follow if Ferdinand did not comply now with the rebels' demands. One of Thurn's associates produced a list of demands, and according to one account, he even grabbed Ferdinand by the collar, forced him into his seat, and barked a demand at him to sign this document. Had matters progressed in this fashion, it is hard to imagine Ferdinand resisting this pressure for long. His enemies held all the cards. They had battered their way from the walls of Prague's Fradshin Castle all the way to his rooms, and now they were here with him and all of his privileges, all of his majesty as the heir to the Habsburg dynasty, had been stripped away. It appeared as though the rebels were in search of another capitulation from the dynasty which claimed to rule over them, which would likely contain even more concessions than the letter of majesty a decade before. If Ferdinand was conscious of the symbolism, it is not known whether Bohemian lightning would have struck twice. For all of the advantages they held, the rebels had not been able to shut off the city completely from reinforcements. It is said that just as the rebels effectively held their king to ransom, a clattering of hooves was heard as 400 cavalry burst into the courtyard of the Hofburg and sent a clear message to the rebels in the room above. The Habsburgs were not finished yet. Rushing to the window, the most surprised inhabitant of the room may well have been Ferdinand himself. Where had this detachment of imperial cavalry come from? In fact, they had been sent by Ferdinand's brother. The adventurous Leopold of Tyrol. Leopold's adventures in the Ulic Cleave crisis and in the Bohemian Revolt of 1611-1612 had cost the dynasty dearly, but here Ferdinand's brother appeared to atone for his past mistakes. The timeliness of the cavalry's arrival cannot be understated. Their appearance alone and the trumpets and banners which accompanied them sent a stern reminder to Thurn and his accomplices of what they were in the process of doing. If they proceeded, it was quite unlikely they would emerge from Vienna with their heads. At the appearance of this disciplined cavalry unit, much of the rebels and the rabble around them had melted away to a stronger position, and Thurn elected to follow them. We can imagine that upon leaving the room, Count Thurn uttered some snide remarks or a disrespectful diatribe. He may well have been completely silent, but I like to imagine it as something of a film scene where he shakes his fist and says something to the effect of, I'll get you someday. But what is certain is that Thurn left Ferdinand's presence never to threaten him so directly again. The high point of the rebellion, it seemed, peaked just as those hooves were heard. And from this point onwards, although it must have seemed impossible to the King of Bohemia himself, Ferdinand and his dynasty would have the upper hand. Ferdinand's capitulation, or even his death or humiliation on the 5th of June 1619, would have created a very different path for Central Europe, and would almost certainly have terminated the Habsburg hold over its Bohemian, Hungarian and Austrian appendages. The Counter-Reformation could well have stalled, with Catholicism becoming, in the mind of one historian, a minority cult practiced north of the Alps only by a few scattered and demoralized communities. Ferdinand had been saved, not arguably by his own power, but by his family. This was to signal a trend which continued uninterrupted for the near entirety of the Thirty Years' War. 
the Austrian Habsburgs inhabited a region and laid claim to titles which were too important to abandon, but which they were not strong enough to maintain themselves. Thus, Ferdinand would be saved, and the Austrian Habsburgs would be saved, by the power most willing to pick up the considerable tab for all this saving, Spain. About a year before all of this drama in Vienna had started, and a little while after the drama in Prague had happened, Ferdinand was in Hungary, more specifically in Pressburg, the capital of Habsburg, Hungary, modern-day Bratislava, the capital of the Slovak Republic, in case you're wondering. His mission was to secure the Hungarian throne, after being crowned King of Bohemia and designated as the imperial successor by his Spanish cousins, as per that ornate treaty we talked about a few episodes ago. Although his end goal was the imperial crown, before he had reached his destination, Ferdinand had worked to effect a change in how the Habsburg dynasty conducted its affairs, starting with the leading administrator of that family, Melchior Kleisel. A falsehood parroted by several of his enemies put it that Melchior Kleisel was the one standing in the way of defeating the rebels. In reality, of course, the Austrian Habsburg's own poverty was to blame for this, but Ferdinand did not see matters that way. Melchior Kleisel, a long-standing advisor and minister for the Habsburg family, would have to go, and in such a way that the wily statesman would not see the end coming. In spite of the work that he had done to improve the tensions between Protestants and Catholics within the empire, Melchior Kleisel had made very few friends. In a sense, this is perhaps unsurprising. If you think about it, to Catholics, Kleisel appeared weak in the face of religious opposition, while to Protestants, the Lutheran turned Catholic was a turncoat and a loyal sycophant of the Habsburgs who never had Protestant interests truly at heart. On the 1st of July 1618, as Ferdinand and his circle celebrated his success in being named King of Hungary, Kleisel was shot at during the banquet, and the bullet narrowly missed his head. It seemed likely that Melchior Kleisel, in spite of some significant efforts, would not be mourned by either side. Indeed, the papal nuncio had informed Ferdinand that Kleisel had become something of a liability. Imagine the scandal if the cardinal was assassinated in his post. Far better it was to dismiss him quietly so that he would be saved this sticky end, a task which Ferdinand embraced, at least to some extent. Melchior Kleisel was invited to the Hofburg to meet with Ferdinand, Count Onate, and Archduke Maximilian, Ferdinand's cousin, on the 20th of July. As soon as Kleisel arrived, he was ushered into an antechamber, arrested, and then transported to Innsbruck. Imprisoning Kleisel did not merely give Ferdinand greater control over policy, it also provided a badly needed injection into the imperial coffers. Kleisel's cash and jewels came to over 300,000 florins and were immediately invested into the empty war chest. Emperor Matthias, still alive at this point, arguably at this stage the only living individual who had the power to stop his cousin from following through with this act, was too feeble, and in any case he was bedridden, so Kleisel enjoyed no protections after his years of service. It was too much for Matthias's wife, though, who was not so feeble, and who rounded on Ferdinand with the acidic quip, I see clearly that my husband is living too long for you. Is this the thanks he gets for having given you two crowns? Ferdinand was clearly content to ignore Matthias altogether, if it meant removing the problem which he perceived as holding the family back. Yet this pursuit of the greater good, for the money it provided the dynasty and the powers it vested back into the Archduke, 
also enabled them to save face. In June 1619, so our story comes back to the modern point, if you like, shortly after Ferdinand had survived the besieging of his capital, Melchior Cleasel, then in prison for nearly a year, was put on trial and charged with responsibility for virtually every shortcoming of the Austrian Habsburg family, from the Letter of Majesty to that Uzcock war with Venice. The College of Cardinals ratified the guilty verdict, and the fix was in. Cleasel was shipped to Rome and lived under house arrest until his return several years later, when by then his old vitality had long since vanished. This Cleasel episode, happening over 1618-19, to was not just a significant point in the dynasty's leadership, it was also a telling indication of how Ferdinand planned to rule, and what council he planned on listening to. Melchior Cleasel was a firm advocate of the Counter-Reformation, and he had done much to further the Catholic faith in Austria, but he was also a moderate voice, an enthusiastic supporter of peaceful coexistence between the two Christian creeds. Now he was gone, replaced by Ferdinand, and by Ferdinand's Jesuit confessor, William Lamaramani, who took up his post in Ferdinand's ear in 1624, which he held until Ferdinand's death in 1637. Peter H. Wilson wrote that Lamaramani possessed none of Ferdinand's agreeable qualities and exceeded him in religious fundamentalism, coming close to the Protestant stereotype of the malevolent Jesuit conspirator. This Lamaramani was hardly a person who would inspire trust in nervous Protestants or someone who would encourage peaceful coexistence in the empire. The decline in moderate voices did not, unsurprisingly, provide Ferdinand with an influx of fresh opportunities to crush the Bohemian Revolt, as he seems to have expected it would. With Cleasel gone by the end of July 1618, Ferdinand still had to endure another year of worsening fortunes, culminating with that vivid scene that opened our episode in early June 1619. During the course of that year, Ferdinand did not learn any universal truths which helped him to neutralise the Bohemians, nor did he seem particularly capable of pacifying Austria itself, as the Lower Austrian estates joined with the Bohemians in revolt against the Habsburgs. Fear and opportunism drove the rebels on. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. 
Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And foreign intervention appeared to offer those rebels a chance to avenge the creeping counter-reformation and Ferdinand's broken promises. With Matthias dead and Cleasel in prison, open revolt was the only recourse that these desperate individuals had. Even as allies of the rebels involved themselves in the Habsburg business, Ferdinand was able to take solace from the fact that the Habsburg family had not abandoned him after all. Contrary to the initial terrifying picture, Ferdinand was not thrown under the bus, largely because of a change in statesmen in Spain, which also affected a change in policy at just the right time. The Duke of Lerma, having held the ear of King Philip III of Spain since his accession two decades before, was finally in the decline. This regime change came courtesy of Balthazar de Zuniga, who returned from Vienna, his duties fulfilled with the conclusion of the Onate Treaty to find a Spanish political atmosphere that was ripe for his exploitation. Lerma had held the ear of the king, but not all of the king's men, and his known corruption, arrogance, wastefulness, and rumoured debauchery had made him many enemies while he clung tenaciously to the top spot. When one of Lerma's close allies was arrested for murder in October 1618, this appeared to be the signal to move on the old duke's position and possessions. The duke's personal fortune of 44 million thalers should have been enough to convict him alone, but the very public secrets of his sins likely convinced Lerma that to contest his own downfall would mean death or exile. Thus, Lerma accepted peaceful withdrawal into the life of a cardinal rather than face the wrath of his enemies and before the end of autumn 1618, Spanish policy was transformed. The new regime, led by Zuniga, upheld the importance of maintaining Ferdinand's Austrian dynasty no matter the cost. To lose Ferdinand would be to lose too much even to fathom. Unlike Lerma's late regime, which had counselled abandoning Ferdinand to some degree in favour of dealing once and for all with that pirate menace emanating out of Algiers, Zuniga appreciated the importance of coming to Ferdinand's aid. Over the second half of 1618, oh boy, did Spain come to Vienna's aid. With Lerma's influence on the decline, he was effectively powerless to prevent the dispatch of 200,000 talers in July or 500,000 talers in September. Lerma's opposition was based off the fear that by injecting the Austrian Habsburg family with so much funds, Ferdinand would be encouraged to fight to the end and that this would only prolong the Bohemian Revolt. Philip III stepped in when, in January 1619, it was determined that money alone would not be sufficient to save the Austrian branch. In addition, the Algerian expedition would have to be postponed, as Philip put it, because it would be impossible to commit ourselves to both enterprises, and because of the risks involved if the aid to Bohemia is delayed, it seems unavoidable that we must see to the latter. But what did seeing to Bohemia actually mean for Spain? Within a few months, it became apparent that it meant Spain would contribute more than just money. If the injection of funds was not enough to shore up Ferdinand's regime, and it wasn't, then Spanish professionals would also be sent. In May 1619, in fact, 7,000 of these professionals marched from the Spanish Netherlands down the Spanish road along the Rhine, through to northern Italy, and then into Austria. The money was also dramatically increased. By July 1619, shortly after Ferdinand had survived the rebels' ploy for Vienna, Madrid had already sent the Austrian Habsburgs 3.4 million thalers, a sum which was to nearly double to 6 million by 
1624. Evidently, the Spanish, just like the rebels, were going for broke, and neither side felt like they could afford to lose. By early September 1619, though, some more bad news came to Ferdinand's attention. The Prince of Transylvania, Bethlen Gabor, began his invasion of Habsburg, Hungary. Bethlen Gabor was in a strange position. Technically, he was a vassal of the Ottoman Empire, and as such, he was meant to conform to his master's policy. With the Ottoman Sultan, then thoroughly occupied by Abbasid Persia, and in no position to intervene in the Holy Roman Empire, the Habsburgs may have expected his vassals also to remain quiescent, but the opportunities in Hungary proved too tempting for Bethlen Gabor to resist. Gabor remembered the revolt in Habsburg, Hungary, over 1604-06, when the entirety of Hungary seemed to be slipping from the Habsburg grasp and into Transylvanian hands. If Gabor could replicate this success, then he would be renowned throughout Hungary as its Calvinist saviour against Catholic Habsburg tyranny. In addition, in a theme we'll explore more later, Bethlen Gabor seemed to have hoped that his increased fame and success would recommend him for a more valuable prize, the Bohemian Crown. Gabor was to be disappointed in the latter field, as you probably know, but he achieved stunning successes nonetheless. The Englishman John Paget, writing in 1839, was able to remark on the significant legacy and legend which Bethlen Gabor left behind, writing thus, As a sign of the times, rather than as a characteristic of the man, it may be mentioned that Bethlen composed psalms which are still sung in Reformed churches, and that he read the Bible through 20 times. Two of Bethlen's most constant objects were the banishment of the Jesuits from Transylvania and the securing of the rights of Protestants in Hungary. But to accomplish the first, he did not hesitate to persecute to the death, and the second seems to have been rather a cloak to ambition than the object in which that ambition centred. The part which Bethlen took in the Thirty Years' War gave a European importance to Transylvania, such as it never before nor since that time has enjoyed. The engagements of Bethlen with the chiefs of the Thirty Years' War the faithlessness of the Jesuit ministers of the Austrian court, and the discontent of the Protestants in Hungary, together with his own ambition, made the life of this prince a constant series of intrigues and wars. That his character should come out quite clear from such a trial is hardly to be expected. Indeed, in the intricate mazes of policy, there seems to have been few paths, however torturous, which he did not tread. Yet it is impossible not to admire the greatness of his designs, the fertility of his resources, his diplomatic skill, and the noble principles of religious liberty for which he professed to struggle. This was certainly an idealised vision of Bethlen Gabor, typical of histories written by Englishmen in the 1800s, but if Bethlen Gabor did possess any of these qualities, he was certainly going to need them if he was to successfully remove the Habsburg presence in their Hungarian domains, which the Habsburgs themselves had been eagerly rebuilding since the disasters earlier on in the 1600s. For all of his noble intentions and principles, though, Bethlen Gabor was not above pillaging and burning his way all the way up to Vienna's gates. Indeed, upon his defeat of the last Habsburg Hungarian army in October 1619, Bethlen marched on Pressburg, where Ferdinand had been crowned King of Hungary less than 18 months before. With all of the Habsburg's Hungarian appendages in his hands, Bethlen took the next logical step in his quest for immortality, and he marched on Vienna placing it under siege for the second time in less than half a year. As he had done before, Ferdinand awaited the next trial with crucifix in hand. 
But this time, things were different. Habsburg military cooperation had worked wonders for the security and reputation of the dynasty, even if rebel armies remained in the field. 30,000 men constituted the Habsburg army, with contingents drawn from Germany, Spain, the Spanish Netherlands, and North Italy. The force had been critically important the first time Vienna had been placed under siege in early June 1619. Once Thurn had been rebuffed by the timely arrival of those cavalry, the rebels' position had further deteriorated with the defeat, and this will become a familiar theme for this military leader, the defeat of Ernst of Mansfeld's forces in the Battle of Zablati in southern Bohemia. This was the event which truly forced the rebels from Vienna's walls, but the arrival and maintenance of this large imperial army signalled that Ferdinand intended to fight, and that he enjoyed the full confidence of his Spanish cousins. Another consequence of Ernst of Mansfeld's defeat was not merely the reduction in the Bohemian rebels' steam, but also the loss of his field chancery, which contained his damning correspondence that had been conducted with such powers as Savoy, the Netherlands, the Venetians and the English. Significantly, the defeat of Mansfeld represented the first Catholic victory in a sea of despair and uncertainty for Ferdinand, and it moved both confessions to act with some haste. The Catholic forces within the Empire moved to resurrect the defunct Catholic League, which had been retired in spring 1617 after it had outlived its usefulness. Once again, Maximilian of Bavaria was chosen to lead the League, and the organisation was poised to provide essential support for Ferdinand from the Catholic German princes, whereas before, Ferdinand had relied almost solely on Spanish aid. Considering Ferdinand's very willing acceptance of this support, and the clear indications of the Bohemian revolts spreading its wings to foreign theatres, it shouldn't have come as too much of a surprise to Ferdinand that the old enemies of the Habsburgs, most of whom had made their presence felt during the Uzcock War only a few years before, should again be acting to undermine the dynasty. It was also a sign of things to come. The impressive Habsburg army could not be in several places at once, and while it had invaded southern Bohemia in the summer, the capital city was again left exposed. After several weeks of moving along the Danube, Bethlen Gabor sought to complete his legend with the capture of Vienna and the imprisonment of that arch-Jesuit Ferdinand. Along the way, Bethlen met with Count Thurn, who added his rebel army to the mix. For a short time then, after some serious downs and then ups, Vienna seemed doomed once more, and Ferdinand's earlier protestations to the effect that he was willing to die for the cause appeared close to being fulfilled. Having entered into an alliance with the Bohemian rebels in late August 1619, both parties may have believed that this was their last, or at least their best, chance to wrest the capitulations from Ferdinand that they wanted. Perhaps they saw some writing on the wall and feared that the longer it took them, the more likely it was that Spanish support would be felt. But Ferdinand had one more ace up his sleeve before he resigned himself to such an ignoble fate. His brother-in-law happened to be the King of Poland, and the King of Poland was in a prime position to launch an invasion of Transylvania, Bethlen Gabor's homeland. Once this occurred, as it did in late November 1619, Bethlen himself was forced to withdraw to defend his lands, with Count Turn also forced to retreat. By acting in this manner, the Poles were inviting the wrath of the Ottoman Sultan, who was the master of Transylvania and a terrible punitive invasion of Poland would be launched the following year in 1620. But this was of little matter to Ferdinand. 
he had staved off the destruction of his dynasty yet again and defended his capital against the malevolent forces of the Bohemian Revolt. This siege of Vienna, limited though it was, was significant for another reason. In the second siege, the rebels and Transylvanians were not merely besieging the King of Bohemia and Hungary, they were also endangering the life of the new Holy Roman Emperor. Since the 28th of August 1619, when the election of Ferdinand of Styria had successfully passed, the imperial crown rested on the head of now Emperor Ferdinand II. It was a momentous occasion, taking place as it did virtually to the day of another election a century before, that of Charles V, the man who had united and ruled over more Habsburg domains than any other figure in history. Other names had been bandied about at the imperial election in Frankfurt, the Elector of Saxony and the Duke of Bavaria among them, but the safe bet of Ferdinand won the day. Yet Ferdinand would not be given long to enjoy his triumph. The aforementioned Bohemian defeat at the Battle of Zablati on the 10th of June 1619 had been a significant Catholic victory, but the defeat had deeply shaken and then forced the hand of the Bohemians. On the 31st of July 1619, perhaps spurred on following their defeat, the Confederates of the Kingdom of Bohemia signed 100 articles which declared the intention of the Bohemian, Moravian and Silesian estates to forge a federal union. What was more, these articles linked the Upper and Lower Austrian estates with this union in a defensive alliance to be directed against the Habsburg encroachment. Ferdinand's loss of so much local support evidently didn't dampen his prospects for election, the office of emperor. Yet it was what the Bohemian Confederates chose to do on the 22nd of August, a week before Ferdinand was crowned emperor, that truly shook the Habsburg dynasty, and therefore the entire continent, to its core. An announcement was sent out to the relevant capitals on the 22nd of August 1619 that Archduke Ferdinand had been deposed. The Austrian Habsburgs, according to the Bohemians, no longer had any hold on the Bohemian crown, nor had they any right to it. A week later, completely ignorant of these developments, the Empire's potentates determined to elect the deposed King of Bohemia, Ferdinand, as their emperor. The deposition of Ferdinand would surely have horrified those present at Frankfurt, not only because of the message it sent to Europe about Ferdinand's character and candidacy, but also because of what would follow. The Bohemians would not allow their throne to be vacant for long. Surely in good time, they would offer it to someone. Whoever took up the Bohemians on their offer would acquire a kingdom up in arms against the Habsburgs, in addition to the prestige and vote in the Electoral College, which went along with that crown. Yet, surely, whoever accepted the Bohemian crown would also force the Habsburgs to engage in a fearsome war to regain what they had lost. Too much was at stake for the Habsburgs to allow the Bohemians to slip from their grasp, and too much had been lost already to allow one more nail to be hammered into the dynasty's cracking self-image. War would thus be certain, and once Europe learned of this latest development in the curious Bohemian saga, the question became, one of whom? Who, or whom indeed, would be brave or perhaps foolish enough to accept this poisoned chalice, thereby opening Pandora's box and inviting a war to the last extremity and all those other apocalyptic metaphors? The candidates lined up or recoiled in horror at the suggestion that they should take the crown, but one figure 
stood out above the rest. He was the most well-connected Protestant ruler in Europe, and he was also the familial, religious and political enemy of the Habsburg family. His name, and I'm sure you know that this is coming anyway, but his name was Frederick V, the Elector Palatine. Next time, we'll see what the process for Frederick's nomination, consideration and acceptance of the Bohemian crown, spoilers, looked like, among other weighted issues. That's all to come in the next episode, my lovely history friends and patrons. I've spared you any kind of advertisements today because, well, I feel we could all do with a break sometimes. Of course, if you're interested, check us out on the social media platforms, and look at me being about to slightly inject an ad here at the end of the episode, but you know where to find me if you want to find me, but make sure, whatever you do, that you tune in in two weeks' time and find me then for episode 18 of the 30 Years' War. Until then, this has been episode 17, and I've had a blast doing it, to be quite honest. So thanks very much for joining me, and I'll be seeing all of you again soon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.